0: Thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil amen name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all right well yesterday what did we see the height of creation was man in covenant relationship with God and with his equal, his spouse. What did we see right after that mountaintop experience? The fall. I'll give you three guesses as to what we're gonna see today and the first two won't count. We're gonna see this pattern repeated over and over and over again until we get to that final man who stays at the mountaintop experience and doesn't himself fall but goes through a fall for our sake. Yesterday we saw the beginning of creation, the dawn of time set forth with the word of God hovering, being spoken and hovering, the Holy Spirit hovering over the the great waters of the abyss and the light spoken by God separating the light from the darkness. If we turn to was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And John bore witness, dropping down to verse 32, and John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Did, Did you catch all of those Key roles, key players, key furniture on the stage. What do you have? You have God. You have the Holy Spirit hovering over waters. You have the Word of God being spoken. And what is that Word? It is the light in a dark world. John purposely takes you back to the creation account. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we see our Lord being spoken from all eternity, separating light from darkness. As I said yesterday, the Old Testament is hidden in the old. And it comes to its fulfillment and perfection in the new. So we need, we're, in the, we're right now in the story of salvation history at the fall of man with Adam and Eve. And now it's time for another Adam to come on the stage. We need a new light to separate us from a dark world. Brothers in Christ, what happens when you allow sin into your home? Does not chaos reign in the lives of your spouse and children? So when Adam commits the sin and is cast out into the wilderness to toil and sweat and labor working the ground, the ground which he will return to in order to bring forth bread to feed his family, is it any mistake that we see Cain murdering his brother Abel out of Jealousy, enviousness. What does it mean to to really hate? Well, I love that car that you have. But you shouldn't have it. I should have it. What does that speak to our hearts about the nature of, of our sin? And so Cain, feeling rejected by God because he brings crops and Abel brings lambs. Abel brings the best comes with a contrite heart. And when the father accepts Abel over Cain, what should Cain have done? Been happy for his brother. But he wasn't happy, was he? No, instead, he hated his brother and he murdered his brother. And then he tried to blame it on God just like Adam did with Eve and God. Am I my brother's keeper? God doesn't smite Cain, he didn't smite Adam either, but he sins Cain out. Notice what happens when you commit sin in the presence of God. You're sent away. Why? Because as we said yesterday, sin means that you can't be in communion with God. You break your own communion with God through committing personal sin. And God is an all-consuming fire and he will consume you. So you have to go. So he puts a mark on Cain and sends him out. This is where we get something that's very crucial through salvation history. We get the two lines. Under Cain, you get a bad line. Cain's sons will bring about murder, polygamy, and all kinds of violence. Cain founds a city, names the city after his son. Adam and Eve know each other. They enter into the one flesh union again, and they have another child. And they name that child Seth. And this is a good child. He replaces the good child Abel. So we have the good line. You've got the bad line through Cain, and you've got the good line through Seth. Seth seeks the name of the Lord. Cain seeks the name of himself. Through Seth will come our next redeemer, our next covenant mediator, the light who will set the darkness aside. Through Cain, or actually through Seth, we get the good. Through Cain, we get the bad. Through Cain, you get trades. The goldsmiths and the blacksmiths and the silversmiths. Through Seth, you don't get those. Why? Because through the trades, you seek what you can do. It is, and from a a theological standpoint, they're trying to set the stage right here for how idolatry enters into mankind. Because who creates the idols but the tradesmen? So is it evil to be a blacksmith? No, of course not. Our work is holy when it's given to God. But we're being told right here early on that it gets abused, that this is the one degree that will then in the end turn out to be a thousand degrees. The abuse, seeking my own talents, How many times do we as men say, I can do this? I mean, just last week, I lost both of my family vans. I have no cars, a wife, five kids, no way to get to work. I started immediately thinking, how can I solve this problem? I can do this. I'll just get a second job. I'll just work harder. Brothers in Christ, it's not my problem to solve. It is God's. Why didn't I turn to God first? How is it that man always seeks to do and solve everything himself without first turning to God? We have to turn to God first. And that's the example that we get in Cain right early on. Polygamy, sexual abuse comes right early on, just a few generations away away from Cain. We see polygamy enter into the family tree in Genesis chapter 4 verses 19 through 24. The boasting of evil and murder and sexual perversion permeates the evil line. Now, this is the problem. The good line gets corrupted by the bad line. Notice what God does immediately when this happens. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, going through verse 5, quote, "...when men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the Son of God saw the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose." Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. Then the nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the good line gets corrupted by the bad line. Dr. Hahn has written about this and a father who keeps his promises in other places describing what this means. It means that the good line started to look upon the daughters of the bad line and saying, oh, that looks... Pretty tempting. And so not only did they marry into the bad line, but more than that, they took wives as they pleased, as they chose. That means polygamy entered into the good line. Verse six, the very next verse. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Boy. If that's the emotion, if God can have an emotion, that evokes in God caused by our sin, do you think it's any different today when you commit sin? This is a father grieving for his child And the language here is extreme. He's extremely extremely sorry for the sins of his children. And now he has to wipe it all out. He has to turn back the hands of time to start all over again because the good line, the hope for mankind has now been corrupted with sexual perversion and personal sin. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's hope. It's not all lost. God is going to create a mulligan. How many people golf here? You know what a mulligan is? It's a do-over. We're going to see a do-over here in salvation history. Notice the baptismal typology wrapped up in this verse. You have the waters covering the earth again in the great deluge. Man enters the depths of death. Noah is told, it's coming. Build the ark. So he goes out. He's building this giant ark. And it's interesting is the dimensions of this ark are... Are so that it sort of mirrors the temple and the tabernacle that will come about in Exodus and First and, and Kings with under Solomon. This ark saves man, but everybody else who's taken away, raptured away, is lost. Only Noah and his family is left. For Noah is told, we are told, is righteous. He's a righteous man. He is the light that will separate the darkness. So man enters into the depths of the murky waters once again. Does that not sound familiar to baptism? Do we not enter into the depths of the tomb of Christ in baptism, resurrecting with him as we emerge? That is at the essence of what we we do in the baptism, the sacrament, that very encounter with God himself in the sacrament. So this is foreshadowing the sacramental uh, baptism right here. And what do we see at the end of the deluge? After man is wiped away except for the ark, what happens? Noah sends out a dove over the waters. So you see the image of God's Holy Spirit hovering above above the waters once again. So he has gone back in time, brought back all the waters of creation, wiping everything out, starting all over. And so the word of God is now once again spoken. Once again, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, over the man. And this dove symbolizes that. You should be thinking of uh, John chapter 3 when our Lord speaks to Nicodemus in the dark. Nicodemus, by the way, is a, as a, a sort of a contraction of Greek words. Nikao de amas. It literally means the people crusher. The people crusher comes at night. Why doesn't he come during the day? Does anything happen that's good at night? Judas goes out to betray our Lord When? At night. So the people crusher, the ruler of the people, comes at night and they talk baptism, being born again of water and spirit. The Greek word used for spirit in John chapter 3 is panuma. It's a double entendre. It literally means wind and spirit. And he talks about how the wind blows where it wills. This panuma, this wind, the spirit is used right here, blowing over the waters which recedes the waters. And so the man is placed on a mountain, again, just like Adam. Adam was formed out of the creation of water and the, and the earth, and then God places him on the holy mountain of God into the sanctuary. We see the same thing here with Noah. Again, you should be thinking baptism. Baptism. You should be thinking Genesis 1. You should be thinking John chapter 1. Sinful man enters into the depths of the watery grave with Christ. Emerge born again of water and spirit. A new man in Christ. You are now bought with a price. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the panuma, the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteous of the righteousness which comes by faith. We have a new Adam walking with God, a new righteous man, saved, reborn through the waters, placed on the mountain of God. And he is given once again, through the recapitulation of the creation covenant, through the rainbow in the sky, he is given once again dominion over the animals and given once again the command to take the, the image of God and bear it to the world. It's the same command that Adam was given. Noah is also given right here. He is the new Adam. It's a recapitulation. Now what's interesting is in this recapitulation of the covenant with uh, with Noah, it comes with a curse. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Cain destroys the good line of Seth, so blood must be shed. Who sheds the blood? Does not our Lord shed blood? Does he not bear the curse of this covenant for all mankind, for you and for me? Now, here's where it gets good. So you got the scene. Noah is ridiculed by all these people. They come to mock him and deride him. Look at this fool building this ark. And in the end, he's the one saved, him and his family in the ark. And he's placed on a new mountain. And we see the, the rainbow in the sky as the sign of God's covenant love for creation and for man, promising on that day that he will never again destroy the earth with a great deluge. So he reset the clocks back to the dawn of time and recreated the world. With a new man and a new family now. We go from a man and wife to now a whole family. So what, is, what does this new Adam do? He sets up a vineyard. Oh, that's interesting. A little garden for himself. Kind of like the first Adam. What happened in the first garden with the first Adam? After his height of perfection, his mountaintop experienced the euphoric moment when he beheld the glory of his bride, Eve. He fell. What do you think is going to happen to Noah? Genesis chapter nine, starting in verse 20, quote, "Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it upon a both laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him he said cursed be Canaan a slave of slaves shall be shall he be to his brothers He also said, Blessed by the Lord, my God, be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Now, a lot of people have been very confused by what all of that meant. What does it mean to look upon the nakedness of his father? There's uh, Dr. Hahn and Dr. John Bergsma wrote an intellectual article on how you can interpret this in one sense. And so there are scholars who have many different interpretations, but they had a very intriguing understanding of this passage. What does it mean to look upon the nakedness when Ham looks upon the nakedness of his father? A couple of things. Number one, Ham is not the oldest son. Shem is the oldest son. Shem is a Hebrew word. It means the name. It's very, very important theologically. Shem is where we get Semites. Jews are Semites, they come from Shem. Notice the text tells us that Ham is the father of Canaan. That's very, very important, why? Because through the line of Ham, you're gonna get five peoples. You're gonna get Canaan, you're gonna get Egypt, Assyria, the Babylonians and the Philistines. Through Shem, you get the Israelites. Israelites and these five people. Any idea how these five people affected the Israelites? You think it might be related to this curse right here? Now, what was Ham actually doing? Ham was trying to usurp the authority of the firstborn son. He is trying to steal the right, the birthright of Shem by taking the authority upon himself. In salvation history, there is a principle. And in ancient Near Eastern cultures, this is very much true. The man who has the king's wives... Is the king. You want the authority? Take the king's wives. We see this in other places. For instance, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben steals his father, Jacob's wife, one of his concubines, Billah. Why? Because his father was sick and elderly. Oh, this is my chance. I'll take his wife and I'll sleep with her publicly. Why? so that everybody knows, I'm the new sheriff in town. We see it again under David. Absalom will take his father, David's 10 concubines in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20 through 23. Absalom tries to take over the kingdom from his father. His father, loving his son, flees from Jerusalem so that he doesn't have to fight with his son. But David leaves behind 10 of his concubines to sort of keep after his house. What does Absalom do? But they pitch a tent out in front of everyone on the roof of the palace so everyone could see. And Absalom sleeps with all 10 of these concubines. Why? Because he who has the king's wives is the king. I am the new chief in town. So what is Ham doing? He's not actually sleeping with Noah. He's sleeping with Noah's wife. He's looking upon the nakedness of Noah. This is an, an incest relationship with Noah's wife. And the article I can provide to you is far more detailed on why that might be. He's trying to take the authority that would be given to Shem, the birthright to the firstborn, for himself. And as a result, he is cursed by Noah. How does that play a role in our lives? How did we get there? What what happened that it would allow for Ham to even do this? What kind of fathering did Ham have that he would try to think along these lines? Could it be anything to do with, with Noah's drunkenness? Brothers in Christ, what are we allowing into our house? Do we conduct ourselves as drunks? Addicts of any kind? Pornography? Do we allow ourselves to be consumed, taking good things and then perverting their use to the point where they, they prevent us, so they, 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 they block us from being good fathers, good husbands? Because when we allow that sin to enter into our home, how do we think it's going to affect our children? We see quite clearly that through the sin of Noah, Ham is now also sinning. The sins of the father are perpetuated down the line. It's a a dangerous cycle that we allow into our society. Noah is is the one to blame here to start. And Ham commits his own personal sin, but it's through Noah's drunkenness that we see this, this situation. Now, notice also what happens. Shem and Japheth, they cover the nakedness, the shame of their father. Just like Adam and Eve at the end had their nakedness covered. Why? To restore their dignity. Because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. We are born with inherent dignity. From conception to natural death, we have dignity. You can't take it away from me. I don't care how bad of a sinner I am. I am born and conceived and will die in the image and likeness of God. I might die separated from God due to personal sin, but I have dignity no matter my circumstances. So even in our worst conditions do we see the dignity of human life being respected by Shem. Now Shem is important. Again, it's the name of God. Or actually, it's the name. But what's interesting is he seeks the name of God. Shem seeks the name of God. Ham does not seek the name of God like Cain who sought himself. Ham will now seek himself. Through Ham's line, what do we get? The Tower of Babel, What did they say as they tried to build this giant tower? Come, let us seek a name for ourselves. So you have the good line and the bad line all over again. The bad line seeks their own name. The good line seeks the name of God. So the good line is through Shem. The bad line is through Ham. Now let's fast forward in salvation history. And you come to a great man of faith. Abraham starting out as Abram, living in an idolatrous community. His father is one of these craftsmen who build idols. We were just warned about these people. And here is this man. We are told he is righteous. And God encounters him and speaks to him and leads him out and says, Go on this journey. Have faith. I'm going to build nations from you. Uh, Kings will come from your line. This Old man who had no children, with an old wife, and they were barren, which in the ancient world would have been a curse. And so they go, leaving all behind, leaving his father's idols, seeking the one true God, being led to the promised land, becomes a father of the nations to the Gentiles. The word nations in Hebrew, goyin, literally means the nations. Right? That's going to be very important, because it will be what is lost upon the Jews during the time of Christ that the purpose was always to encompass all the world not just them but they're going to lose it they're going to forget that Abraham was a father to nations what are the three promises that God makes to Abraham Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 he makes him a great nation he's going to make him a great nation in order to be a great nation you got to have land Makes a name great. His name will be made great. Well, in order to have a great name, you have to have a royal dynasty. The third promise is he will bless all the families of the earth through him. He didn't say, I will bless only Isaac and Jacob and the descendants from that line. Only the Jews will be blessed. No, no. All the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. In order to do that, it has to come through Jesus Christ ultimately, who blesses all human beings. So land, royal dynasty, and the Messiah, the ultimate blessing. Those are the three promises that God makes to Abraham. Now... We're going to go through them real quick, but there's going to be something that you're going to find very interesting. Because what is Abraham in our New Testament understanding? He's the great man of faith. I mean, St. Paul reveres this man for his faith. Why? Because before he was ever circumcised, he walked in righteousness with God. Jews, don't you get it? The circumcision was a discipline. It was a penance for your sin. It is not what God intended. He did it for the stiffness and the hardness of your necks. It's a great man of faith. But we're going to see how kind of wishy-washy Abraham actually gets. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. Because Abraham gave up all his, his faith, we see a very interesting uh, uh, episode in salvation history it is one of the most clearest foreshadowings of our lord that we were ever going to see in the old testament scott hahn and a father who keeps his promises says quote first abraham's seed received its national land and boundaries after the exodus through the mosaic covenant second abraham's seed became a kingdom after the conquest of the promised land through the davidic covenant and finally the seed of Abraham became the source of blessing for the entire world through the incarnation of Christ through the new covenant. So we're going to see the, the, the fulfillments of all three of these blessings that Abraham received. But I want to focus on Genesis chapter 22. It's called the Akedah in Hebrew. The binding. This is a very fascinating uh, episode. It's the sacrifice of his only begotten son. Now Abraham didn't only have one son. He didn't only have two sons. He had multiple. First started with Ishmael, then Isaac, and then he had other children after his wife Sarah died. Why didn't Ishmael count? Why only Isaac? Because Abraham lost his faith. This great man of faith loses his faith. God says, we're going to have kids right through you. You, the old man, we're going to have many, many children as the stars of the sky and the, the sands of the seashore. So what does Sarah do? Oh, well, maybe God meant Hagar, my mistress. How many times do we just decide for ourselves what God means for our own lives? You know, God intends plan A, but we go, you know, maybe he meant plan B. Oh, that's, I'm sure that's what he meant. So Abraham, being a great man of God, turned to Sarah, his wife, and said, no, no, I would never engage in that kind of adulterous-like polygamy. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't actually say, he said, good idea, honey. High five. I mean, what kind of great man of faith is this? He goes in and has the one flesh union with Hagar and polygamy again enters into the good line, the family of God. This great man of faith commits sin. What happens as a result? What is the very next covenant encounter we have with Abraham? The covenant of circumcision. In the first there was no curses. There was, no, there was nothing that Abraham had to do. It was purely a grant covenant. It was only God bestowing his blessing upon this man because of your faith. I will bless you. I will give you land. I will give you dynasty. I will bring forth the Messiah, the king from you. He sleeps with Hagar and all of a sudden it's, here's the knife, cut the foreskin off and all the men with you right now, please, thank you. I mean, could you imagine However old this man really was, cutting off the foreskin of his, of his little man. I mean, really? That takes faith. And imagine I have to explain that to everybody else. Yeah, guys, I'm glad you all came together tonight for this family meeting. Uh, good news, bad news. Uh, good news first, God still loves us. Bad news, we got to cut off some skin. Here you go, I'll be outside if you need me. You know, I mean, but they did it. Why? Because if they didn't, they'd be cut off. That's the curse of that covenant in Genesis 17. Any man who's not circumcised is cut off. You cut it off or I cut you off. Why cut off the foreskin? What is it related to? Sex. You sin in sex? Well, let me punish you in sex. Let me let you feel a little pain as a result to your personal sinful action. Now, God will use our sins, the fallen human nature of this world, and he won't cause it, but he'll use it to his advantage. And so what happens? Is Ishmael forsaken? No. From him will come other great nations. That's what is promised to Ishmael. And what do we see? All the Arabs. But what also do we see as a result to the sin that Abraham allowed in his house? Nothing more than personal conflict for millennia between those two peoples, the Arabs and the Jews. Like squabbling brothers, fighting all the time. That's how my sons are. I'm always having to put them in headlocks and leave each other alone. I mean, it's a little more deadly and serious, but in a nutshell, when you boil it all down, that's exactly what's going on. Due to personal sin that he let into his home, we see the effects of that today. What will be the effects in your family 10 generations from now because of the sins that you've allowed into your home? What will you do about it? How will you change it? What can you do today that'll make a difference that might change those 10 generations? So you've made a mistake. What can you do to make a blessing? Do you bless your kids every night? Do you bless them every morning? Do you tell them how much God loves them? Do you tell them that you made mistakes? Do you you confess your sins to them sometimes? And say, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to have something better than me. Don't do what I did. Do you share that journey with them? I think you do. And that's what sets you apart. But what about the other men in your life? The other fathers and the brothers The men you work with, the men you go to church with, what are they doing? What could you share with them? So the great binding. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 22 and see how God speaks to us in such clear language about the coming of our salvation. Starting in verse 1, God tested Abraham. Quote, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here am I. Now, right after Sarah asked to have Hagar and Ishmael disowned, they get cast out. Okay. So Abraham, acquiescing to his bride, Sarah, sends out Hagar and Ishmael. That's pretty rough. I mean, you make your bed, you lie in it. And here we see him casting out You think that might have added to that frustration? So the reason why we're being told that is because we want you to know that only Isaac remains. Only Isaac remains. Verse 2, he said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now Moriah is a, a hillock on the great mountain of God in Jerusalem. It is the very mountain upon which the temple will be built. It is the very mountain upon which our Lord will be sacrificed. So it is no mistake that this mountain is the mountain that Abraham is sent to offer up his only son. It's all he's got left is Isaac and God says, now you have to kill him. Now what's very interesting about this already, just in the first two verses, is in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that surrounded Abraham, the Canaanites. They practiced this all the time. They would offer up their children to the Baals, to the pagan gods, these demons that possessed these people. And so they would offer them up as sacrifices. And so imagine this, you're Abraham, You've been called away from your friends, your family, your home, everything you've ever known into a strange and foreign land. You don't know anybody. You're told that God is going to give you this land and that kings will come from you. And you're just going to be a father of many great nations. Well, this is awesome. And, you know, you're not like all those idols over there. You know, you're the true God. You have no image right now. So, you know, we can't fashion anything with our own hands and do anything on our own parts. We have to turn to you in that faith. And he has that faith. And then he says, now take your son and offer him to me. God. What gives? What makes you any different than anybody, uh, any of the other gods around here? Why did I leave my home again? I mean, I was living the life of luxury over there. I had a great thing going. What was the point in coming out here and camping for years after years? Really? You want me to kill my only son now? To you? I might as well pack it up and go home. I mean, isn't that what I? Isn't that what you do? It's what I do. I'd do. Be like, really? You're no different. It's exactly what everybody else is asking. But he doesn't do that. He just says, here I am, Lord. And he goes and he does it. We aren't told he squabbles and complains at all. He simply goes. To me, that is personally very intriguing. I don't think I have that kind of faith. To trust God. I'm sure God leads me in that same way. Leading me into a world that seems... Very similar to all the craziness that surrounds me. But maybe I lack the faith to see through it, to see the purpose. So when God speaks to you, do you see the purpose? Do you have the faith to see the purpose? To trust that there is a purpose? That in taking away both my family cars, leaving me nothing, that God will provide. That there will be a way and a purpose. That he will take all of the craziness and chaos and make something good out of it in the end. We have that faith. Skipping on to verse 4. On the third day. Anytime you hear an on the third day, that should be red flags. That's huge. That is purpose-driven. There is typology involved in that that's related to our Lord. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. On the third day, we have resurrection glory. But it's being wrapped up into this typological symbol of Abraham offering up his son on the mountain. So on his third day, he sees and beholds the place where our Lord will be crucified one day. I mean, could you imagine the emotions Abraham must have felt and the tears that might have been welling up in his his eyes? I'm going to have to kill my son, my only begotten. But I trust there's a good reason for that. Now, what's interesting also is he comes with a donkey and he comes with two others. Again, these are foreshadowings of the good things to come. Our Lord enters into Jerusalem, into this very region on a donkey. As the new Solomon entered into Jerusalem and ascended into the throne, so our Lord on Palm Sunday rides a donkey into Jerusalem as a king, but also as the sacrifice as Abraham brings his son on a donkey. And he comes with two, as our Lord comes to that very mountain, with two, one on his right and one on his left. And so Abraham brings two others. Only this time, this trip, they get to hang out. They don't get crucified just yet. So they get a pass on this one. He says, no, let me take my son, and we will go yonder, offer sacrifice, and we'll be back. That is also very intriguing. It's about his faith. We're going to be back. I know it. I don't know how, but I trust it. I trust in the Lord. Did Adam trust in the Lord for the sacrifice? Was he prepared to lay himself down, trusting that the Lord could raise him up again? No, he did not trust in the resurrection glory of God. Is Abraham trusting in the resurrection glory of God? Sounds like it. I'll offer my son, but I trust you'll give him back. Now, the wood for the offering, and verse 6 And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hands, the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. I I, I kind of chuckle because, I mean, Isaac's a teenager by this point. Probably a, you know, strong enough young man. Probably has a lot of chores around the house. Can take care of himself, especially against a, a man who's over 100 years old. And yet, He's being forced Into this sacrifice somehow I mean Abraham's gonna Wrestle him down And then bind him up Like a sheep And put him up On the altar I mean you really think That's gonna happen Not really No Isaac Could at any moment Overpower his father He could at any moment Run away And there'd be little chance That Abraham would be able To catch him And, and force him Into the sacrifice What does that imply willing, willing. Willingness Isaac is a willing participant. What does that imply about the character of Isaac? He is a righteous man already. He carries the very wood that he will be burnt upon up this mountain. The sacrifice that he will be bound to, this wood, he bears it up this mountain. Isaac is a proto-Christ willing sacrifice, total self-giving. Father, I don't know what you're doing. I don't totally get it, but I trust in you. You want me to go and you do this? You want me to lay down my life? I give it to you. It is not mine to give. I give it to you. What a beautiful, beautiful image. What a clear voice of God in the very early times of our, of our salvation history, of God speaking to you about the good things to come that this willing sacrifice of Isaac, bearing his own cross up the very same mountain that our Lord would be offered up on. Where is the lamb, my father? My son? The Lord will provide himself the lamb for the offering. Abraham's prophetic words can actually be rendered in that way. He will be the offering. How profound. So, um, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Verse 12. We are, if you skip down to verse 12, Abraham is right at that moment. He's ready to kill his son. He's going all the way. God sends the angel and holds his hand. Finally, God has proven himself to be something other than like all the demonic evil spirits that pervade that land, that accept the personal sacrifice of their children. God is saying, no, uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. I won't let you kill your son because I'm going to send my son. I want you to know that unlike everybody else in this land... I don't require your sacrifice. I require mine. Because only an infinite son can make up for an infinite crime. This is a beautiful, beautiful image of the good things to come, as I said. Verse 12. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is complete trust in God. Trusting that God could even raise him from the dead because it was God who promised him his descendants the name, the blessing to all nations. Hebrews eleven nineteen 19, quote, He considered that God was able to raise man even from the dead. Hence, he did receive him back and this was a symbol, unquote. So this is what God is telling us, that Abraham trusted that even though he would have to kill his own boy, that God would give him right back. That is what Adam was supposed to do. Adam was supposed to die to save his spouse, to save you and me. If he'd have died, we wouldn't have concupiscence. We wouldn't be lusting. We wouldn't be tempted. We wouldn't be driven to a world of money and lust and all of the fornication of every temptation. We would be living in a state of perpetual grace. Aboding with God and the beatific vision. But Adam couldn't trust in God to raise him from the dead. And so he died. He died in his soul. And he passed that on to the rest of us. And ever since then, we've seen nothing but chaos until the Lord comes and defeats it all. And this is the clearest voice of what that'll be the great Akkadah. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of Isaac. Abraham saw the day of the Lord and was glad. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 56 and 58, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was able to see my day. He saw it. And was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego a me, the great I am. Abraham saw the day of the Lord in this beautiful vision. This ram caught in a thicket. His head, his horns, are caught in thorns. This is the very image of Adam being cast into the wilderness, wrapped up in the sacrifice that was yet to come. And so Abraham takes the sacrifice and he offers it in, in, instead of his son Isaac. And so God sends his son to be offered up as a sacrifice instead of our sacrifice. It is glorious. To the Jews, this was monumental. Unfortunately, they still cannot see the full implications of this in salvation history. But this is what the gospel writers and, and St. Paul and the New Testament was trying to teach them and teach us, that the fulfillment of all of this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 16, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Because of Abraham's gift of faith to God, not withholding even his only son Isaac, God will be a man of his word and fulfill all the covenant promises that he has made with Abraham. It is when Jesus is lifted up and draws all men to himself that he is the perfect fulfillment of this verse, blessing all nations. In Acts chapter 2, we see how every nation under heaven is gathered to the same exact mountain. All men come from all nations to this moment. And we see the Shekinah, the glory of God, come down in a cloud upon those gathered in the upper room. And the Spirit of God is poured out upon them. Why? Because as the prophets told, this would be the great ingathering, the final blessing to all nations. Starts with Adam and Eve, the first man and wife. Goes to Noah, the first family. Now to Abraham, the first tribe. What is God doing? Expanding the the family. The day is going to come when it, it envelops everyone. But notice this man's doubts. The great gift of faith that this man bared, he also had doubts. I want to go through this. Not to show you how bad Abraham was, but more to show you how much like he is like you. That you're just like him. And I want you to meditate upon that in your own personal life. God promised a son through, through Sarah, as we said. He goes in with Hagar, and as a result of that sin, we see chaos. We see the, the penitence of having his foreskin cut off. The punishment of a father giving out this to his son. But more than that, this great man of faith on a couple of occasions shows a little bit of weakness. When he's brought into the land the first time, a famine occurs and he's forced to go down into Egypt. One of the first times the people of God will have to go into Egypt to avoid a famine. What does he do when he gets there? We are told that Sarah is a very beautiful woman. And so what does he do? He says, Sarah, now if anybody asks, you're my sister. Now that's not a complete lie because he, she actually was like a half-sister. So he's not completely lying, but he is twisting the truth a little bit. Why? A great man of faith called by God out of the idolatrous practices of, of the world to the true God in relationship with him personally. Why doesn't he have faith? He's willing to offer his son Isaac but he's not willing to trust that God will protect him. He feared that because of her great beauty, they would murder him and steal her. Now, maybe he was doing it to protect her. But did it work out? Pharaoh took her, put, a, put her in his harem. Ask Sarah how much of a protection that was. God, you is. If this is your protection, then I don't really need it. So he lies. He lies to protect himself. What happens? God sends all kinds of trouble for Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh's like, "What is all of this?" And he finds out that Sarah's actually his wife. What are you doing to me, bringing this upon my house? Take her back. Take all this gold and go. Get out. Leave me alone. It works out great for for Abraham. I think he finds a little niche market. All I got to do is go find all these kings. All right, Sarah, you know how it works. Get over there. Make me some money. I mean, he's like the first pimp. This is like the great man of faith. This is bad because he does it again with another king. And he always makes out. He always gets more gold, more herds, all kinds of stuff. He becomes a very wealthy man as a result. But it's all subtle because he's trying to protect himself. But God, he's like, no, I got a plan. Let's stick to it. And he always brings this truth out to these, these, these kings. And these kings always go, what are you doing to me? Get out, go, move along. So this great man of faith, he does this with a pharaoh. And he does this with King Abimelech of Beersheba. Now Beersheba is a place where they create a covenant oath with Abraham. So the great king Abimelech enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham as a result to that experience. They form family bonds. And that means they have to come to each other's rescue and they have to be there because they are blood relatives now. And so what does Abraham do? He goes and rescues his, his brother-in-law Lot or his, uh, uh, his brother's son Lot from being held captive. And he fights these 10 other pagan kings and he, he's victorious over them. And then he goes to where? Jerusalem Jerusalem. In Genesis 14, he enters into a covenant relationship with a very unique figure in Jerusalem called Melchizedek. Now, the Targums, the ancient rabbis, told us that this Melchizedek is actually Shem, the firstborn son of Noah, who is king over Jerusalem. Back then, it was called Salem, Shalom, peace, the town of peace. He is a priest. He is a king. And what does he do? He offers sacrifice. He brings out bread and wine and offers sacrifice with Abraham and enters into a covenant relationship with him. What's interesting is the language that's used is first Melchizedek blesses, and then he provides sustenance. Remember when God did that with Adam and Eve? He blesses them in Genesis 1.26, and then he provides them sustenance. It's kind of curious that we see that all over again, huh? Not really. It's intended. It's purpose-driven. We'll see it again under David, and we'll see it again finally under Jesus Christ. The priest king of Salem is a key figure in salvation history. It is Shem bar Noah passing on this good line that will come down to Jesus Christ. And Jesus will become the new priest king of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem which is all the world. So in these two key figures in salvation history, I want you to see the rise and the fall of each. With Noah, he is a new man, a new Adam, placed on the mountain of God in the garden once again. But because he allows drunkenness into his home, chaos ensues in the lives of his children. Abraham, a new man, a new Adam, walking in the grace of God, on a mountain, offers sacrifice. But because of his personal sin entering into his home, chaos ensues in the lives of his children. We'll see it over and over again. Brothers in Christ, I want you to reflect on this today. I want you to think for yourself, number one, how have you stood apart amongst your peers? Like Noah, ridiculed for his faith, trusting that there's going to be a lot of rain coming. Trust me. Yeah, right. How are you stood apart from your peers and in your environments? But also, what sin are you allowing into your home? What chaos is ensuing in the lives of your children? What can you do about it? What will you do about it? What will you do for your neighbor, for your coworker? How will you be a blessing to them so that we can bring them into the fold, sharing the image and likeness of God? Thank you.